Today on the Free Thinking Podcast, we have a great hero of mine, Ross Bailey, founder of Appear Here, dubbed the Airbnb of retail, who has helped more than 200,000 brands find short-term spaces in London, Paris, and now New York. He talks about how he will build back the delight-inducing, memory-making theatre of the high street, and how this is not about property, this is about entertainment and experience. So let's get into that. Well, Ross, thank you so much for doing this. So I think, you know, I wanted to just, yeah, there were things we talked about in the summer. And so my first question is, you know, you, we were talking about the, the accelerated death of the high street. And you talked, you had this wonderful phrase about, yeah, that we have burned the theatre down. And I wondered if you could tell me a bit about what you meant by that, because that's, that's, that's very, that, you know, that's provocative language, isn't it? Well, I think that, you know, when you think about retail, especially places like department stores, at one point they were run by showmen. They were people that wanted to bring the world to the city. You know, you read stuff about Harvey Gordon Selfridge or uh, John Wanamaker, and they talk about, you know, these were innovative guys where, you know, things like the price code and the receipt were built because they wanted to bring the idea that you could have all these merchants in one place from around the world, which obviously meant that the merchant couldn't be there. So that's why they did it, because they wanted to bring the world to the stage. You have Harvey Gordon Selfridge, who took down the first plane that crossed the English Channel, who within a week or so found the guy, took the plane apart and re-put it in the middle of Selfridges. Now imagine this is a time where a, a structure for the first time flew in the air. You know, uh, you know, and then within days, this structure, this miracle, this magic construction was rebuilt in a store. Um, that when the suffragette movement happened, which at the time was a terrorist organisation, Selfridges took out of all of its windows and made it all about the suffragette movement. This was you know, radical stuff where you think a lot of these stores wouldn't dare have opinions like that or do things in a world today because it's all about the bottom line. And fundamentally, retail went from being run by showmen to being run by accountants. It went from being about expression to being about how do we sell as much as possible as quickly as possible. And it went from being about how do you spend your day and discover to being about how do you buy more of what you've already got. And I think what that meant was that somewhere along the lines, retail just got lost. And you look at, you know, every street in every city, we could close our eyes and they were the same. And I remember, you know, I didn't go on a huge, you know, my parents were very hardworking and they ran a a small hair salon in, in the countryside. And we didn't have the opportunity to go on holidays every year when I was young. And I remember as I got older and I started to travel the world, I was sort of shocked by how all these cities I go to, everything was the same. And yet my mum would talk about when she traveled when she was younger and how when she was in Paris or Barcelona or wherever she was, how each street was different. And we became this cookie cutter monogamous, well, that's the wrong word, but you know what I mean, world where, where it lost its soul. And I think that to me, that has made retail boring. And boring retail is going to die, and it has died, and that acceleration has happened during COVID. Um, But the opposite of that, the theatre, the creativity, the individual, I think is going to come back. Mm. Yeah, I I mean, as you know, I I, I love that thought. And I think that leading with that 
creative idea to, to you know to attract people there's got to be something different we want that delicious dopamine rush we're going i've never seen that before and it feels not just personal to me but i i note that it's personal to that individual and i remember you've talked to me before about the agora and the idea that you know the agora not just as a place of financial transaction but social transaction this is where we get together this is where we make memories and i'm interested can you tell us a bit more about that because i think that storytelling seems to be at the center of what you do well, I was spending some time about a year ago, year or two ago, trying to think about, you know, how do you articulate retail? Because I'd sit down with people and you talk about retail and they really would say, well, you know, retail's dead. Think about, you know, BHS has gone under or, or you know, Woolworths has gone or whatever it is. And, you know, Amazon is going to disrupt that. And you're like, fundamentally, I just don't think that's what, re- in my head, that wasn't what retail was. Retail wasn't just about these big brands that had great financial covenants that took huge spaces that could open up in hundreds of locations. It was so much more than that. And from a very simplistic point of view, you go, well, what is retail? And I I read a book a few years ago by Simon Sinek, which was, you know, why? And it was that whole idea of the day one mentality to if you really want to understand things, you go, why does it exist in the first place? And, you know, when you take retail to its fundamentals from a property real estate perspective, you've got residential, which is where you live and our homes, and we've done that since the beginning of time. You've got commercial, which is, you know, from, you know, the medieval times to the Victorians, to whatever period it's been, there's been places and workshops and blacksmiths and, you know, offices where people go to congregate and share ideas in in how they work and factories. Uh, And then you go to retail, and that was the other asset class, which is where we go to meet, where we go to connect, where we, it's the other part of what makes us human. You know, as humans, we create, we have families, we, we work, we pursue, we, we, and then we gather and we congregate and we have connection. And it's what makes us, I think, human beings. And what often people forget is that, you know, real estate and the way that these asset classes are structured reflects how we live, Right. And then the more I looked at retail, it was like, well, what were the first forms of retail? And you look at really since, you know, the beginning of time, when you look at, like, you know, before Christ, i.e. the ancient Greece, you look at um, what they called retail. And they had these literal modern day strip malls where you would then have, you know, the, the, the square. And, and I guess at one day there was the square where people would go to vote and gather and hear announcements. And someone went, well, do you know what? It would be smart if I sold apples or whatever it was and a market appeared and then they built full structures where you had places where people would go and share their wares share things they discovered on travels whether it was spices from africa or ivory or whatever it might be they shared them in this one place they shared the world that they were they were going and exploring and then they would sell things to consume and eat and then they would be entertainment it would all be in one place and they called it these these sort of original malls the Agora. And if you look at the translation of that word from ancient Greece, it's gathering place. So the very first examples of any purpose-built retail wasn't called selling space or places to buy or whatever. It was places to gather, places to connect, places to meet, places to be what we are as humans, which is that human connection. I think, and, and to me, that was just so interesting because when you look at how it was described, it was about connection, gathering, sharing, all of these things that fundamentally I think is still the best retail today. Um, and I think, look, in a pandemic world, we, 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 I think we seek now more than ever 
what was taken away from us. And I think it's a real realization that as humans, we are pretty miserable if we aren't connecting. Uh, and, and to me, the idea that retail won't exist going forward is ridiculous, right? We're not going to move from a smaller screen to a bigger screen in the evening when we want to relax. We want to go and discover and connect and play and see and share stories. And fundamentally, that's what retail is about. And when you, when you go to that day one mentality and when you open up the definition, it's got so much more potential. I think, well, you know, I, I makes perfect sense to me. And I think that idea of gathering around many uses, many stories, bouncing from thing to another, I mean, it, it is what we're missing. And of course, you know, when we're at home, you know, as much as there's times I love being with my family, that those chance encounters, those things that provoke me to think differently to my normal kind of structures, they're just not there. And I wondered to what extent when you're thinking about, you, you know, appear here and you're thinking about how you curate a group of different entrepreneurs, how you, how they, how do they first come to you? And then how do you then begin to work with them to work out the right composition for a particular street or a particular project? How does that work? Well, I think often to me, it's what's exciting with Appear here is we're a technology company. So we're a platform. And what that allows is that thing to be relatively democratic. So it's not really about often me saying something. It's about looking at what comes. And what's hopeful and what, where I'm excited there is what we often see is that, you know, if you present a landlord with several ideas, often the ones that are most interesting to them are the things is what they approve and what gets to uh, come to life. And, you know, I look at some of the most interesting streets, whether it's Broadway Market that, you know, in East London, the pre-pandemic was busy. And during the pandemic, when there's lockdown, people have still gone there. Even if things aren't open, people are there on the street and it's full because... Uh, it's interesting, and what's interesting and often about those streets that, are, that thrive, I think, over time, is that from an architectural point of view, they are different. Everything's a bit unique and one-off, and it's, but yet it comes together. They have a difference of um, different types of people in there. You know, it's all it's very much a high propensity of independence because they understand the area, they understand what's relevant, and actually during a moment like this, they were able to fully adapt. Um, and, and all of those things bring a, a, a local community that feels different. If you turn up there versus sort of the equivalent in West London, which is Pavilion Road, the people look completely different. The expression of the same thing, you know, fishmongers on one or the others looks completely unique. So I, what I love there is it's the ability to have more independence, more voices that make something truly reflect an area and what it represents and who it stands for. So I guess where I'm getting to is I think that often we overthink experience and we overthink curation and it's an it's a awful word that's used all the time in real estate and often it's people who would never have edit a magazine or never have set a agenda that somehow think they can create a street and I think what curation has to be is really about hopefully selecting the best of any thing that comes through but often I think it's about leaving things to happen and, and flexibility and what works stays and what doesn't work moves on and uh, and not believing that there's some kind of ego where you know better than anyone else and I think what I've realized in the projects that I've seen most successful like you know Old Street Station when we did that years ago is you had this tube station that we decided not to spend a huge amount making it completely beautiful and flush but to make it basic to to make the foundation so you know concrete floors make it super simple but make it about being egoless so actually the ideas could speak. 
and I remember we met with incredible brands and and we could have just put seven brands into this tube station, but nobody, well, firstly, nobody wanted to be there. And then a few were excited by idea and maybe would have. But what we ended up having to do is just allow people to appear. And we had over 500 different ideas in about two and a half years launching this tube station, which meant that the average tenure was about two weeks. Now, in that time, we had a menswear store that took the old public toilets that stayed there for two years. They were incredible. They won best menswear store in the, in the, um, in the world. We had small little cafes and, that would sell porridge that would open up in the morning and by the evening it would be a speakeasy or whatever it was. So we had things that evolved and they moved and they changed. And in the end, it just had this vibrancy and this heartbeat and often it's used an example of curation. But what we did is we sort of went, you can be there until the crowd gets bored. Uh, but if you are there, you've got to be, you know, you've got to, do what you said and be of a certain quality. Um, so my view is that I think that the world is interesting and streets are interesting. And when you look back at things like the King's Road in its heyday, what made it interesting was that anyone could participate. I hate the idea that one individual thinks that they can dictate what a street is because culture doesn't come from one individual. It comes from many. It comes from many voices. And the real fight we've got in retail at the moment is against big massive tech retail things like amazon that you know are gonna dictate our futures and i think that what makes retail so amazing is that anyone can have a voice and i truly believe that you know long-winded answer your question but i truly believe that entrepreneurship is the one of the purest forms of human self-expression and if you can give people access if you can give them flexibility if you can give them the and enable them to tell their story to bring their ideas to life that's what brings vibrancy you know it's not about me liking everything when I walk down the street, but it's about me liking the energy, the vibe and the things. And it's a bit like life in itself. You know, you don't want every day to be amazing. You might think you do, but if you don't have shit days then the great days are never that good. So I think that's the same with a street, but what you don't want is everything to be monogamous and the same and boring. Mm. No, I <clears throat> totally get that. And I think that kind of, I mean, that body monotomous, language. Not was... monogamous, could be both. I think monogamous. Yeah, well, monogamous means you're constantly kind of sleeping with the same franchise. And I think uh, that, that's, that's not what we're doing. I was say a bit of both, maybe. <laughs> I meant monotonous, but it could be. It apply, I think both words apply. I think it's, it's a new useful word. It's, sort of, it's monotonous, it's monogamous, and it's, uh, it's not homogenous. We don't want monogamous in retail. <laughs> exactly. I think that thing, though, of, you know, our studio is very near Old Street Tube, and I, I'd go there most, through most days. And, you know, at a point where you didn't expect any delight, you didn't expect to be having a conversation. And I think it was really interesting watching people move where in a tube station or any sort of, yeah, sort of station or airport, you know, people, they're designed to move people moving at speed, to be flowing in straight lines. But just watching people, it was so lovely serpentinian routes as they went, oh, that's interesting over here and that's interesting over there. And also because they, they were entrepreneurial souls, speaking to fellow entrepreneurial souls the conversations going on there was no threshold anymore people were stepping out over the the threshold and meeting each other and i thought that was really interesting almost the shops were far bigger as a result well when you talk about that point i think if there is one piece of curation it's the point you mentioned there which is audience and a bit like going why does retail exist what i you know the conversation i had with the team at the time was like why does this tube station deserve to exist why is it interesting and ultimately it always comes down i believe in real estate audience i think that 
people in real estate, especially retail, often forget that they're in the, you know, the audience, the entertainment business, right? Not in the uh, management of the asset. I think that will, like anything, people sometimes forget that value is a return and a transaction based on value created. So if you create value and people spend time there and you do something good, then you will create uh, value therefore in return. And if we don't believe that that makes sense, then fundamentally everything's broken. Now, what was interesting with Old Street is we looked at it and we said, okay, what's the audience? And we called it the, 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 the station of early adopters because you've got the coolest architecture firms in the world in Clark and Well and furniture designers. And they would come out of one of the entrances because Old Street's this amazing, if you look at the design, there's those four exits. So one of them is just these incredible designers. Then you've got the bit that goes down um, past Old Street into the city. So you've got, and who are the people that work in the city that get the tube? Well, they're like, super young right so they're like young they're analysts they they're they're bankers but they've not made enough money yet where they're going to have a driver and those individuals you know have high disposable income they probably are the first ones that want an iphone and whatever else they're, they're still early adopters and then you have the other entrance where you had this amazing blossoming at the time of the of tech startups that have come out of nowhere so you've got the people who probably might have been an architect or might have been a banker that have gone actually I'm going to do this tech stuff. Um, and we looked at that and we went, God, this is really interesting because you've got these designers, these architects, these people doing stuff with their hands, these bankers, these people. But in each case, they're sort of at the head of the adoption curve. So that was our view. Like, what could we do there that would always be sort of super relevant for that audience? And then the other thing was TFL had a, has like a, I guess like an internal motto, which is, you know, journey should be, for, you know, we want all journeys to be forgettable because ultimately if you remember your journey into work right it's because it got delayed or something went wrong but if you're doing the journey every day and the, the journey that morning's forgettable it means it all sort of worked and we went well what if at old street it was memorable what would that look like and you know over that time we had you know one day you'd walk out of that tube station i remember there was a big festival happening a month later and this festival took over two of the stores and it just looked like a billboard you know, with the lineup. And then it had a small circle in the door which you could just sort of peep your eye through. And, and I thought nothing of it. I just assumed, frankly, it was a billboard when I went into work one morning. And then on the way home, I could hear this music going and it was sort of pumping throughout the station. And I went up to the billboard and I put my eye at this small little hole. And inside there was about 80 people in this tiny shop dancing. And they had one of the headline DJs for the concert a week later that was doing a surprise gig and the first people that had gone in you know someone had just walked in the music playing and then you know you've got these diehard fans that are having the time of their life and suddenly all I wanted to do was go to that concert and it was those sort of ideas from that to a yoga session to you know one night I remember walking down and there was so far sounds or someone doing gigs with candlelight and you go this is a tube station and suddenly it just represented so much of to me what London was about and why did it happen not because we were smart, not because we had this creativity, not because we orchestrated it, but because we just gave people access. And more voices, if you believe that people are fundamentally creative and interesting, more voices will, I believe, create those experiences of that and creation that we talk about. Yeah, I think I, I, you couldn't be more right. And I think that thing you're talking about, being relevant, what, what I love about this, and, and I know 
like you've, we've talked about this before, that, you know, in some ways it's not so much curation, it, it's, it's facilitation, but it's very intentional. You know, you're really thinking carefully about that audience. And then as a result, though, you're not just, it's not one size, it's not you just, you leave it and let it go. What you're talking about is it's a perpetual field test. And I find that fascinating, that seeing what's working, seeing what's resonating, sometimes turning it up, sometimes turning it down. And I think, sadly, you know, that's what we've, we've, we've missed terribly. And so Sadiq Khan, when we last spoke, he just said that London was having an existential crisis, that it didn't know what it was for, that if it doesn't have visitors, whether it's workers from outside or whether it's kind of tourists, you know, we're not really sure kind of how it works because at the moment, you know, he, he's fundamentally saying some, a lot of the exciting things are brought in by it trying to serve those people that don't live there. But also there's a further bit to it too, that it's also not serving the people that live there with the variety that you and I are talking about. You know, it's almost like it's, it, it's, it's become, well, it's the one size fits all thing, isn't it? It's the cookie cutter thing. And I think where, where I'm going with this is, you and I before spoke about that one of the key things we need here is if, if we're talking about the theater, the venue, we also need to encourage the theatre designer, the art director, the musician, the storeholder, that it's not the top-down architecture-designed, engineer-designed thing. That's fine for the background, but we need more foreground and more fast-moving content. And I'm not sure there's any question there. I was just remembering what you told me before. <laughs> well, no, I think... Well, I, but I also feel like... I think there's two things. I think one is that what often happens is if you best serve the people that are there, it attracts more. So, you know, I'm working on, when I think about somewhere like Columbia Road or Broadway Market, um, which I mentioned earlier, that had been happening for quite a while. And a few years back, you know, there were no tourists would be seen dead there. It was very much a local thing for local East Londoners. And, and then, you know, we just gradually saw demand picking up and picking up. And now, pre-COVID, you started to see tourists turning up and walking down Columbia Road and going down Broadway Market. Because fundamentally, people want to feel like when they do experience stuff, I think more today than ever, like they're living there, like they're experiencing it, that they're, they're joining your life for a moment. And if it feels dictated and unauthentic, I think people read that. And I think that's why you saw the typical tourist destinations disappearing um, and being empty. You know, Covent Garden wasn't doing well before this. Where was doing well was Soho. Now, Soho was the, probably the one pocket of central London that wasn't built for the tourists. You know, it was, you know, some of the most incredible little restaurants that you would go to post-work. It was amazing little shops like, you know, that from whether it's from around the world or whether it's locally that had their only store there. You know, if I wanted, you know, I like our legacy. The only store that existed for our legacy was in Soho. Um, what happened when you then think about other schemes, you know, there's a scheme I won't name that was recently built that architecturally looked stunning, but they just took good retail that existed everywhere else and opened up their second post. So it became just a mall and no, and, you know, and sales have done terribly. So I think that what really matters is about how do you build something that is local and that fundamentally doesn't exist. You know, I was speaking with a developer recently and they were, they've got a massive new retail site opening and they're talking about, you know, they literally said, you know, it's so exciting right now. Guess who we've got? We've got Dishoom. We've got potentially, um, you know, and they mentioned and other stories and some other brands, some other brand. They said, so it's really exciting. And I was like, and so does every other new scheme that opened up in the last three years in London. But what does London not have? 
And, you know, I look at our demand on the platform and there's so much homeware. And actually during COVID, home has had an acceleration uh, online and in stores and done incredibly well. Tottenham Court Road used to be the place for the homeware. Where exists today? And not enough is someone going, well, what doesn't exist today? And how do we fulfill that? And how do we create that? And either how can it be a thing for all of Londoners? And therefore, actually, it could be something for much more. Or how do I create something that's very unique for this pocket of South London or North London or whatever it is that's going to serve those individuals like a village? And, you know, in Chelsea, the most exciting thing that's launched for so many years is Pavilion Road, which is just because they created a local street for the locals. And actually... It's the place that if I'm going from east to west to have a meeting, that's where I go. So I think often we need to think much more about being really particular to that focused audience. And I think then, you know, it feels authentic and it becomes, it actually becomes much more. Whereas when you try and serve everyone, I think often, especially in retail now, with how fatigued we are by it, I think you serve no one. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, if we're looking at that squeezed middle of all of those very generic kind of mass market franchise businesses, you know, it's going to be the things at one end that are very rare, as you say, and the things at the other end that are very local. That's what we want. But I'm interested in, you know, you appear here is is all over the world now. Are you seeing that same diagram? Are you seeing the, the local, the care for the entrepreneur, the rise of the passion economy, if you, as you call it? Is this true of all of the cities you're working, working in? Or, or, or is London particular in this? Or what, what, what do we learn? I think London is particularly magic in this, in the sense that before COVID, I remember I was in our New York office, and there was a part of me that thought, what is New York meant to be? You know, New York for so long has been about money and capitalism and, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street and all those sort of vibes that you think of and it sort of punches you in the gut in, a, in, a, in a actually often a positive way where you feel like, God, New York City, this is where anything can happen. But fundamentally, it was all based on money. And I think the world, in a way, has moved slightly away from that. And you've seen that, you know, the tech epicenter of the world that is where people probably make the most money isn't based there anymore. And, um you know, and, and, and it was sort of feeling like it lost its way, whereas New York had this incredible creativity. When you speak to people like Diane von Furstenberg and you hear about Studio 54 and her life and the way they lived and what was going on, it's like the grittiness of New York in one way gave it this ability that anyone from anywhere could make it there, even if it was about money, but that mess of it made it quite magic. And I think that New York became recently sort of, if you, you're either a big brand or if you were doing something creative, you had to have raised a ton of money from a venture capitalist. And you sort of were walking down the street and it was like, you know, ethically made tablecloths with um, fibre that was used in space or something that was ridiculously over-explained and over-designed and someone that was now making kitchenware that had raised venture capital money uh, and was a direct-to-consumer brand. And you just walked around and God, this is all so... Like, everything's got the same font, the same typeface, the same vibe... Uh, and, and frankly, the same type of person that's gone and raised money to build a new tech thing that, that is essentially modern retail. And it was just boring. Whereas London, I think you've got a mix of everything and you've got so much individualism. You walk around Soho before this in New York and there were so many amazing chefs and bars and things that were coming up. Whereas you just didn't really get the same New York. A little bit in Brooklyn, but very quickly in Brooklyn, it just became, you know, another harry's shave store and warby parker glasses and you know and all a bit um you know all a bit frankly you know, this modern day version of sort of millennial mass retail and i think that what's happening now is values massively reduce in new york 
you're seeing that creativity already start to come back. So long answer to your question, my, my simple answer would be yes. I think that fundamentally everyone in these cities that we see cares about much more the same things than we would have thought. I think that that has balanced out due to COVID and globally I think we're at a similar place than we were before. I think that because of technology, because of online, I think as we become more reliant on technology and frankly as humans we become more globalised, I think then what we seek is the exact opposite. We want that but at the same time we then want this real individualism. The reason why Bushwick in Brooklyn is so much more busy with young people is because they want the local independent store and bar and they don't want the mass retail. So it's weird that the young person who has grown up globally and who is using all of this technology at the weekend seeks something which is actually very much the opposite of that. And I think that you're seeing those two things coming together. The more globalised we become, the more we need something that makes us feel like we're at home and it's local. Uh, So I think that that is a universal trend because the thing that's causing that is universal. On the flip side, I think that places like New York were behind it because it was so much more about money. And places like London have always been a bit about both. You know, you have friends in London who give up a great job and go and make, I've had friends that have gone and made pottery or they've gone and done, set up a florist because that's what they love. Whereas in New York, I've got friends that might have wanted to do that, but then they'll get a good sales job because there's the opportunity and they can earn so much money. Um, So I think that, you know, you see that change in the type of brands and the type of creativity. In Paris, on the other hand, you have such a huge amount of independence as well. But I think London was the most interesting because there was a bit more access if you were an entrepreneur to get started and, and less red tape maybe than Paris. But um, yeah, that's sort of yeah, my long answer to that simple question. No, it's, it's fascinating. I, 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 I enjoyed that tour. And I think the, because what I'm, uh, you and I spoke about with regard to the, you know the book with the RIBA that you know part of that that book and maybe this is my my last question really because I'm fascinated by so much of what you're talking about and if I was sort of drawing this shape of things that are about you know what might be the clues to reigniting the post-pandemic city you know getting us back out of our house out of our pajamas back on the streets again and the joy of that the opportunity of that so much of what you're talking about there there's the individualism, I think, is critical. It's the, the visceral delight. It's the theatre. It's the variety. It's the relevance. I can see all of those things beautifully coming in. And I'm wondering to what extent do we think developers and councils are going to be able to embrace that? Has everybody been shocked so much that they're going to start being better at prototyping and enjoying these fast-moving things rather than maybe reverting to type and, think, and becoming absentee landlords again. Uh, do you feel positive about, I don't know, the new roaring 20s, the decade ahead? Yeah, I do, because I think that the optionality's disappeared. I think that, you know, I sat with landlords before and they'd go, well, look, we actually, some would say we disagree. Others would say completely agree, completely want what you want but can't do that because I do need the 10-year lease because I need the right covenant for our lenders. The truth is, is that those guys are not opening stores anymore and the ones that are are disappearing. So I've sat with landlords who decided, you know, there's a very good street that we work on where throughout the last four or five years, we've had brands in those stores that have um, been paying roughly about 70 to 80% above market rent. So they've actually made the landlords more money but they were independents and stuff who were only ever 
who were always on flexible leases. Now, when you look back at that historically, we've got spaces on this particular street where the occupancy has been 90% plus. So they've pretty much always been filled. Uh, and they've made such a big uptick in, in rent. On the other hand, what a lot of them did, about half the landlords on that street, is they all took big deals with big retailers who signed 10-year leases. Now, what's interesting when I look at that dilemma four years on is that all of those big retailers disappeared. So the, the Lululemon store, which I've forgotten their sub-brand that it was, Kit and Ace, that took a long-term lease, disappeared. The American apparel store disappeared. The, um, a lot of the big brands actually just went under. So the idea of what was Covenant, in retrospect, it just didn't really exist. And what you don't have today is you don't have Topshop opening up 200 more stores. You have Topshop going under. And I think what that means is that the old, there isn't a, there isn't a new Topshop that's there that's going to open. Boohoo is not going to suddenly open up 500, 600 stores. So there isn't that new version that's replaced them. And actually, the interesting thing is that retails only exist since the late eight, since the 80s, right? 80s, 90s. Uh, and then continue. So we've only had it for you know, 30, 40 50 years max and actually the retail that's coming back is the retail that's always been there and I think that if that optionality disappears it means that people have to do the retail which is about giving people access and giving people opportunity uh, and the exciting thing is you know I hate the word pop-up shop and everyone's always like oh you know you guys do pop-up shops it's like no we don't if you know if the guy that takes a space does well he might be there for five ten years if he doesn't do that well, he might be there for a few weeks or he might do incredibly well, but choose that he should only be there for a few weeks. The point is, is that he should be there until the audience gets bored and the crowd moves on. And hopefully he moves on before they do. Um, and I think that's as simple as it should be. And uh, yeah. yeah. Mm. I, I, I love, I mean, it does, it does, it does, it does. And I think there's care for the audience that runs through everything you talk about. You know, I, I, as you know, I love that. There's a, there's a, a I think I might have told you this before. There was a, 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 a music producer, he, an old friend of mine called Morris Lider, and he, he was, uh, he was, uh, he was the producer and tour manager for Pink Floyd and U2 and, and David Bowie and all these bands. And he had this wonderful equation, which was dollars per clap. And so essentially, and he, he produced lots of our projects, and he'd say, you know, are people going to clap? Are they going to appreciate? If they are, we'll spend money on it. If they're not, we won't. Or we'll spend money on it once, give it a go and see if it works. And I think that, you know, that fundamentally, so much of what you're talking about is about entertainment. And I think the, but the power of that, and also I love the way we're also talking about the fact that we want the industry to be more about impresarios, doesn't it? It's not about asset managers terrified of risk. It's about actually taking a punt, having a go and seeing if we attract and then building upon that. And, and the truth is, is that we know that if we do attract an audience, the next question is keeping that audience there. But we know that if that happens, it, like any other thing, it, it then attracts, whether it's marketing dollars or investment or whatever else. So the value you create that then creates the value that people want to spend there means that ultimately you'll fundamentally create value, I believe. And I, I think that to your point, what's also been really interesting during this time is entertainment in retail doesn't need to be a big store with all the singing and dancing you know what i realized coming out of this is someone bringing me a coffee to my table and a smile and saying how was your day uh in my local little coffee shop 
gave me such joy, probably more joy than I realized it did prior to this, even though this is what I've sort of spoken about for a long time. And the interesting thing is that, you know, if you've got a friend, you know, a lot of my friends at the moment are having something, having babies during the pandemic, there's definitely going to be a baby boom post this. And the ones that have already had the babies, you know, you watch them and when they're, you know, the lockdown eased for a few weeks in December, you're watching with this newborn baby that they are, it might be raining outside, it might be cold, there might be a deadly virus, and they are going through all the effort to get the baby in the pram and walk down the street and have a coffee and spend time and go for a walk and go into little stores or whatever it might be. And that's what I think shows us that this will always exist. And then on the flip side, they might be using Amazon, pressing a button, and the nappies arrive tomorrow on Amazon Prime. And guess what? That's going to be a hundred times better than turning up to Costco or going to Tesco's, which would have happened before. But fundamentally, that pure retail connection thing where they're getting the pram, they're going for a walk, and they're wanting to spend their day, and they're wanting to live their lives. The fact that people are still doing it now, when there isn't the government restrictions in place that we've got to be locked to our houses, shows to me that it will just continue. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, we don't live in a city because of the museum or the art gallery or the cathedral, right? We live in a city because of the 99%, and that isn't shops. It's the individuals, the immigrants, the people the, of all ages that decide that they want to create something. And the arena in which they do that just happens to be stores because it's the asset class that isn't where we live and isn't where we work. It's the asset class which is where we create and we connect. And that's why retail will continue to exist, in my view. Wow. That is a fucking great conclusion. I love that. I think that, that last point around, you know, it is, it is that third place. I think I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think the way, you know, in some ways that this extraordinary social experiment that we've just been through has allowed us all, as you say, that we now know that value of that experience those small things, that, that, that kind word, that recognition of the fact I've been there before, you know, it gets us not just to connect, but throw ourselves in. And like you say, when you get involved like that, there's, much, there's a kinship. And I think so much of what you're talking about is that kinship between like-minded souls, curious people, making memories on both sides of the equation. And I think that's wonderful. Ross, it's been an absolute pleasure. I could talk to you all day. And I think also I really, I greatly admire what you're doing. And I think what's happened over the last year and a half, I, you know, I see, I watch some of those big developers, those semi-quasi-public organisations like Transport for London and Network Rail, all of them, everything they're saying now about wanting to be commercially astute for the long term and socially relevant, socially useful is exactly what you're talking about. So I'm, it's gonna be, I hope, a very exciting future. I look forward to all the wonderful things you do next. Thanks, Adam, I appreciate the time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Free Thinking Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Ross. Now, next week we have Natalie Slisser, Head of Customer and Product Futures at Lendley's, beaming in from Sydney. Natalie is one of Australia's few social psychologists specialising in the built environment with a razor sharp focus on the future of living, leisure and work. She talks about how great placemaking should start with the ending, the value of a cultural risk assessment and how Silicon Valley offers inspiration to the city as the ultimate perpetual field test. Do subscribe so you know when the next episodes are and do leave us comments so we can get better and better. Thank you and see you soon.